you know, physical uh, growth is an interesting uh, thing. You might not want to grow up physically, but if your body is, is healthy, for the most part, you're, it's just going to happen. You, you almost can't stop it from happening if your body's healthy. You're just going to grow up physically. Spiritual growth, not the same thing. Spiritual growth, unless you are intentional, very intentional about it, you will never arrive at spiritual maturity. You will always stay a spiritual infant. We think it should work the same way as physical stuff. I'll just go through life, and I'll just do what I'm doing, and I should just grow. Not That's not the way it is. You know, I've got two sons, and both of them at different times, uh, they, they wanted to be like their dad, I think, you know, work out, be big, you know, that kind of thing. And so, I mean, they, they, their, their, their thoughts were, you know, they wanted to kind of look like Dwayne Johnson, you know, the, the pecs and the, the biceps, and they just wanted to be developed and toned, and they wanted to be there. They had the dream, you know. Uh, but the dream is not enough, right? They could spend all kinds of hours looking at muscle magazines, and drinking special stuff, and, and uh, hoping. They could have spent time praying that they get big. They could have kind of used visualization and tried to think themselves big. But after it's all said and done, reality is, unless they would get up from in front of the television set or the games, and they would go to the gym, and they would get into a regular uh, planned regiment, they would never grow. Same thing spiritually. We kind of want to be, you know, we don't, we don't be like Dwayne, you know, the rock. We want to be like the rock, right? We want, we want, Jesus must increase. We must, we want that. We want to be like Jesus. And we can hope, we can pray, make us like Jesus. But reality is, unless we do something to get there, we're not going to get there. You know, it, this is where the book of James comes in. James fascinating. Because James, small book, five, five chapters, but he uses a little word that uh, is used more than any other New Testament book. It's the word that we're going to translate a spiritual maturity. James is not interested and a faith that just talks. He wants a faith that grows. He wants a faith that works. Faith that talks, as he's going to say, we'll see it in time, is useless. But a faith that, that works, a faith that's growing. Now, now here's the deal. It's a simple goal for the, the summer as we start our summer series. Our goal is by the end of the summer, our lives have been transformed. It's a simple goal, right? Life transformation. Um, we want to spend time this summer in this small book of James. We want this book of James to get into our soul. And we want our faith to grow. I don't know if any of us at the end of the summer will be able to say, I am spiritually mature. Uh, if you're saying that, you probably are not, right? But we need all to say this. I am more mature spiritually than I was when I started this summer. And to get there, the only way you'll get there is by the decisions you make and commitments you make even now. So let me make a couple of challenges out to you. First of all, and it's, been, it's already been said, but let me reiterate, let me encourage you to be here as we go through this study. Now, I know it's summer and we're going to get vacations and that's great, but you know the way summer works. You know, sometimes I wake up and it's just nice out in the 
boat or the clubs are calling my name. Or I start thinking, you know what, I can get two or three hours doing yard work before it gets really hot. Or, or you know, I, I, I could sure use to sleep in because last night was a pretty late, late night. You know, or you, you know, we've got relatives coming and so we can't because we've got to clean up. Or, or we've got relatives here and so we can't because we've got to clean up. Or relatives have just left and we have to clean up so we can't be here. Let me encourage you to recognize those voices for what they are. The sound of Satan, all right? That may, that's maybe just a little bit of hyperbole, but just, 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 maybe just a little bit. Know that you need to be, we need to be subject to God's word this, this summer. Bring your Bible, bring a pen. You can stop off at the information desk and pick up a page of notes each week. It's blank sheet of paper, but you can take notes on it. Or you can pick up at the information desk my first Alliance Notes notebook. It's got enough notes in there for 52 weeks. Um, I think it cost us seven bucks to make them. Five bucks, such a deal. Just tell the people at the desk I said five bucks. They try to get more than that. Um, <laughs> one, one other thing, and that's, that's this. And it's been mentioned as well. Because you know how Sunday works. You come and maybe maybe you say, oh, that was, that was good. Okay, I understand. And then you see someone in the hallway and then someone like runs over you almost in the in the uh, parking lot and you fight with your spouse and your kids and by the time you get home you just forgotten everything altogether until next Sunday and so what we want to do we know that kind of stuff happens is we want to be in James Monday Tuesday Wednesday Thursday the weekend and so we have our blog go to our web page there'll be a scroller starting tomorrow morning click on it and it'll take you to a devotional blog that corresponds with the uh, sermon so that you'll be able to stay in James all week because our goal is to be in the book of James that the book of James may be in us that we may be transformed so easy enough Goal. Let me challenge you to make that your goal as well. If you got your Bibles this morning, or uh, you got your Bible app, turn with me to James chapter one. James chapter one. And you know, just so you know, as we get into James, this is the oldest book, most probably in the New Testament. Uh, this is the very first book written. James wrote his book around 42 uh, A.D., which is amazing because Jesus was crucified around 30 A.D., so it's like 10 years later. Now, you might say, well, 10 years. Do you remember September 11th, 2001? That was 16 years ago now. Seemed like yesterday. This is only 10 years removed from when Jesus died. So this is pretty current. Now, chapter 1, verse 1, says, James, a servant of God of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes and the dispersion greetings. These guys, when they wrote their letters back then, they didn't put their name at the end. They put it at the beginning. It's actually a better plan, I think. It says, James. Now, this James, because there's several in the New Testament, this James is the brother of Jesus, and you need to know that, that James did not always start off, you know, he wasn't starting off following Jesus. I don't know if you grew up with an older brother who thought he was God, right? James did grow up with this. And so I don't know how that looked in his house. I can't, I can't imagine I, what, what transpired with that. I'm guessing Jesus was a good big brother, probably, you know, he, he nailed it there. But still... That was a stretch, right, for your brother to be saying such things. At one point, Jesus, early in his ministry, he comes back to his hometown, and he's making these audacious claims about his identity. He's getting a big crowd because of this, but his family knows. This is talk of revolution. This is the kind of talk that gets you killed. 
And so his family goes to get him. Next text, it says, And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. Jesus' family, James, is, is saying his brother, He's crazy to say stuff like this. In John chapter 7, what happens is, is Jesus' brothers are mocking him. They're saying, oh, you're so almighty and awesome, and why don't you blah, blah, And so they're mocking him. And this is, James says, this is why. For not even his brothers believed in him. We would say, yeah, well, that's a big stretch. I can un- understand that. But they weren't there. Now think about James for a second, right? He's heard all this. They've seen Jesus. He lived with Jesus. Jesus is probably a good big brother. But then one day he's watching his big brother on the cross dying. What is going through James' mind? Who can imagine what he's feeling, what he's dealing with? And they, they, they bury him and just the, the, the wondering what is going on. Something happens to make James do a 180, and the Apostle Paul lets us know what it is. If Paul didn't include this, we would have no clue what happened because there's no other text about it. But in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, you know, that Jesus, he's talking about what was delivered to him, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, right? We got text, uh, New Testament Gospel text on that. And then he appeared to the Twelve, yeah, we, we have all those stories as well. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Then he appeared to James. So Jesus, after he rose from the dead, he, women at the, at the tomb and the guys on the road to Emmaus and his apostles in the upper room and he, he appeared to many people, but Jesus said, there's one other person I have an appointment with. And Jesus got alone with his brother James. And when James saw the resurrected Jesus, he knew it's true. And so James goes 180. James becomes the senior pastor of the very first church ever. It's the church in Jerusalem. Very first church. A little bit of nepotism, right? right? Jesus, his brother, becomes the pastor of the church. Yeah, 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 right? But he did. And James becomes a, a key leader in the church as well. Um, 20 years from this book, 60-ish, 62, uh, the, the persecution by the Jewish people against the church in Jerusalem is fever-pitched. And so what they do is they take the leader of the church, James, to the temple that he has uh, forsaken, their mind, and they throw him off the pinnacle. Uh, the, the fall doesn't kill him, though. According to tradition, he's able to get up on his knees in a praying stance, and he prays what he heard his big brother pray one time. He says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. According to tradition, the crowd was so enraged, they picked up rocks, they began to throw at James. And then a gentleman steps forward with a club and ends James' life. So James had, had, had come from unbeliever to first pastor martyr. It says that he wrote, verse 1, 2, the 12 tribes scattered abroad. You can imagine the early, early church is pretty much very heavily Jewish, if not all Jewish. You know, if you read Acts first few chapters of Acts, multiple chapters, there's this huge controversy as far as whether or not Gentiles are going to be let in or not. But the so early, early church, very Jewish. And when you're a Jewish person and you trust in Christ, then what happened is your family disowned you and uh, your community disowned you. 
And suddenly you had, you were out, no place, no way to eat. You, at best, you lost your job, you were shunned, you had no protection of the community. And so the people had to leave. Now it's not like us. Today we're thinking, oh, maybe I'll take a job in Toledo, maybe I'll go to San Francisco. You did not leave your community. It was your protection. It was your, your clanship. It was who you were. But these guys had to leave. They have no, no identity now. They're, 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 they're gone. They're out, scattered, probably mostly Syria, Egypt. They're out. And, and according to James, we'll get into it more, but these guys are now got immigrant status. They are, are under major persecution wherever they go. They've got no one to, to protect them. Poverty has overcome them, and with all the wonders that come with that, and so they're under major, major persecution. And these People probably are praying a little bit of what you and I might pray under major persecution. Oh, Lord, help us. Oh, oh God, why don't you do something for crying out loud? I'm, I'm trying here. I mean, look at all I've given up to follow you, and I'm really trying here. Please, would you just step in and, and help? And there's silence. And the, the people are, are wondering, why, 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 why? And so often, why, question, uh, can derail our faith. You know, it was Father's Day. My uh, dad passed away in 99. Uh, he's a good man, and I owe a lot to what he did for me. When I was a kid growing up, he was a solid believer. He took us to church all the time. But in his latter years, a trial kicked into his life, and he uh, prayed deeply, Oh, God, would you just remove this? And God did not remove it. And it pretty much derailed my dad's faith. And you probably know people like this who start off, they're going, they're moving, but something comes up. And maybe you're one of these people. And you just, it's just, you, you can't put it all together. Loving God, care for me, this is not happening. And I, I don't, and a gap comes between you and God. There, there's nothing that has the potential to disrupt your faith, derail your faith more than trials. And so, so uh, James has seen his, his church scatter. They're, they're, they're gone. And as they're gone, he knows they're facing persecution. And so we realize, and here's the stories of many of them who are walking away and they're leaving the faith. And so James kicks right into this thing, right immediately. James is not a guy of lots of flowery speech. He just hits it practically head on. And so he brings up an issue that we are prone to destroy our faith as well, this idea of trials. And he's not going to answer the question why. He's going to answer the question how. How do we bear up under them? How do we deal with them? This is first 17 verses. So verse 2. It says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now James says the first thing you're going to need, if in fact you're going you're to be able to handle trials, the first thing you, you need is you need a new perspective. You need to see trials as tools. That, that's new, because usually we see trials as obstacles. We see trials as nothing more than a pain. We see trials as something we're gonna, we want to get away from. And James says, no, 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 you need a new perspective here. You need, you need to see what they really are. 
He mentions, consider it all pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials. That sounds a bit masochistic, doesn't it? Really? Really? James, are you a little... If there was not a comma there, if there was a period there, we might say, yeah, James is off on this one. But there's a comma. Consider it pure joy when or because you know that these are going to have an impact on you. Uh, The concept of pure joy is he's not talking about joy exclusivity as much as joy intensity. Um, let Let me tell you what I mean. I took my daughter, Lauren, to college several years ago and took her to Moody and uh, got her in her dorm. Everything else got back in the van and just fell apart. So we're bawling, crying. So we're driving down the Dan Ryan. I'm crying and Teresa's crying. We're crying. <laughs> Not real safe. So then when, two years later, when I took Nathan to college, got him his college, said goodbye in the dorm, I barely made it to the van before I fell apart. Crashed. And so we decided this time we weren't going to be driving. We were just going to stay in the parking lot bawling for a while before we, we left. My other son leaves for school in 10 days. And I know I'm going to be bawling at the, at the airport. I've already started bawling at, at the airport. Now, I, I'm crying. I'm hurting. Pain and tears. Uh, but I know it's time. I know this is a good thing. I know, I've seen God work in each of their lives, and they're prepared, and this is his next step for them. So it's a good thing. It's what I really want. But there's tears, there's hurt. This pure joy does not mean there's no confusion. It doesn't mean there's no, no pain. It doesn't mean there's no tears. It's not what, is, what he's referring to at, at all. So he says, you consider it pure joy because, right? For you know that the testing of your faith produces Steadfastness. James isn't going to say it directly. He says it implicitly, though, that uh, there is a sovereign God in any issue we face. Any trial we face comes through his hands. It's not an accident. It comes through his hands with a purpose. And the purpose is to sanctify us. It's to grow us. It's to make us who he wants us to be. Um, his goal isn't to make us happy, right? It's to make us holy. His goal isn't to make us healthy. It's to make us holy. His goal isn't to make us wealthy. It's to make us holy. And he's going to do. This is God's plan. It may not be our, our page that we're on, but it's the page God's on. He's going to do what he needs to do to get us there. Um, this word steadfastness is so huge to what James is saying. The word means to uh, bear up under, stand under. It's, it's, uh, you're learning to ride your bike, and you're riding your bike, and you fall, and you skin up your knees. Ow, 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 ow. It hurts, but you get back on the bike, and you ride, and you try to ride, and you fall over, and, and you hurt your elbow. Ow, 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 and you're riding your bike, and you don't have your helmet on, and you hurt your head, and, and then you, 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 you're going, but you don't know how to put on the brakes. I did that one time when I first learned. I, did, I banged right into a car, and you're going, oh, no. Can you imagine at that point? You say, just forget it. I'm done with this. It's nothing. It causes pain. It's, I'm finished with this. You'll never learn to ride a bike, right? You're learning to play the piano. I'm not going to ask how many people had piano lessons when you're little, but we're going to be the next Liberace. You know what I'm saying? We're going to we're going to get this down. And so we watch the YouTube things. We got it already, and we sit there, and we're it's just not sounding like the guy on on YouTube. And, and on top of that, these stupid scales, and I can't get it right. And I always get the black white keys mixed, and I'm just and my wrists hurt. My fingers don't bend like that. And after a while, we just quit because we just. We just quit. Uh, 
You ever try to learn Hebrew? Hebrew is a tough language. Uh, my, my professor that I had for Hebrew, he, he said that he took beginning Hebrew, Hebrew 101, four times. Because the first three times he failed it. But he was determined, I'm going to make this. So I go into his office one day after class. And he's sitting at his desk. He's like an Indiana Jones guy. And he's got his eye things on. And he's got all these tools. And he's looking at a piece of pottery. This, he says, it says it's 3,000 years old. And he's looking at the inscription. And he's, he's putting together his PhD dissertation in Hebrew. He would have never gotten there if he would have quit. Here's reality. When we want to live the Christian life... It does. It's like riding a bike. It's like learning Hebrew. It's like playing the piano. We don't just know how to do this. He's got to teach us. And it's hard. And if when we're under the trials and God's trying to teach us, this is why he's given us these things. If if we say, forget it, I'm done because it's too hard. You know what? You're never going to learn to do what he has for you to do. You just won't be there. You won't. The reason why he's given us these things, according to James is that it works in us. It makes us who we're supposed to be. Uh, the trials do lots of different things in us, Scripture would say. They can humble us. They we, we get so committed that we need this to be happy or this to be happy. We need this thing or this relationship or over here. we got to have these things. Sometimes what the trials do is they help us see that we don't need those things. We're chained to that stuff, and God's got to break the chains. One of the things that trials does here is it purifies us. Uh, dads, I don't know if you and your boys were little or girls were little, and they come to you, although boys are more wimps than girls, I find in this. But they come to you and they say, I got a splinter. And you say, oh, okay, got it. Figure out. So you will get a straight pin, right? And that kid sees you come at him with a straight pin, and what are they doing? And you're like, well, how am I going to fix it? If I don't touch it, don't touch it. It's not going to, just going to hurt a little bit. No, 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 no. You know how this goes. You try to rationalize with this child. Oh, it's just going to be for a moment. It won't be happy. Then you'll be so happy. No. And so the wife is on the kid's legs trying to hold him down. And sissy's holding down the other arm. And you've got this kid's hand in her trying to, you're poking him all over, trying to get this thing out. It would have gone much easier, wouldn't it? If he would have just said, I'll deal with it. They're not going to do that. I think that with us, reality is we've got splinters. Some of them we were born with. Some of them we picked up in our family of origin. Some of them hit us through life with different situations that have come up and different troubles and things that have come across us. And, and we've got some splinters that are keeping us from enjoying the life that God has for us, that are keeping us from being the people he is. And God wants to remove these splinters. How do you think he's going to do it? And the angels are not going to hold down our legs and hold us yeah, while he does this and forces his will on us. We need to submit ourselves. This is why he says, I love this. Uh, he says, And let steadfastness have its full effect. And let it. In other words, we have to cooperate. Sometimes God is trying to to remove the splinters. He's trying to grow us. He's trying to, but we're not interested in Him touching us. We're not interested in in, in being taken care of. If this is what it takes, you know, it's as if you you uh, went to the doctor. Doctor said, you know what? Sorry about this. Life happens, but but death does too, and you're going to die. And you're kind of bumming about that, I suppose, and a little bit upset and uh, feeling the full weight of it. All of a sudden, the doctor says, but there is one procedure. And, and this procedure will, it will work. 
but it hurts a little bit. So I thought you might not want it. It's like, ah, give it to me. I don't even need the anesthesia. Let's do this, baby. Yeah. And you're, 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 you're experiencing joy. It's going to hurt. But you're experiencing joy. Why? Because you know the, the, the effect. When we understand that, that trials are tools, when we have a new perspective, we realize that they come through the hands of our sovereign God to make us and to shape us. It, it, it changes things. It, it helps us in that regard. You know, a nail, if it does not stay underneath the hammer, it's never going to reach its goal, right? If, if the diamond is not underneath the chisel, it will never be precious. If the gold is not under the fire, it will never be refined. If the Christian doesn't stay under, if they bail every time they get the chance, every time the issue comes, they will not. They will, they will not have it do the work that God intended it to do. We can respond different ways with our pain. I'm not saying we are jumping up and down per se, but we can be uh, victims of it. You know, I'm just a victim. We make sure everyone knows we're a victim. We're complaining. Uh, another key response is to make sure that everyone around us is affected by our pain as well. They know we're just like hyper grumpy. Uh, sometimes we run. I think sometimes when God is trying to work his sanctifying work in our lives, we run. Here's the, the deal. Here's the reality. We just, do we believe it or not? That's just really the question. Is there a sovereign God who loves us, who is committed to growing us, who is going to use these things, according to James, to grow us or not? That's really what it comes down on. So, so we need a new perspective. We need to see that trials are tools. But we need more than that, James is going to say. That, that, that it's not just that, that, that. Verse 5, he says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. He's not talking about wisdom here like, uh, i got to make a decision and I need some wisdom, so why don't you give me some, God? Or how can I invest my money? Why don't you give me wisdom? Or I've got this test and I need wisdom. Or I want to succeed at work, I need wisdom. God may answer those prayers, but he's not going to answer them based on this text because that's not what he's talking about here. The context is purely when you're going through trials and you're going through deep stuff and you're not sure, you, you, you go to him. That's what he's commanding you go, God, I need your eyes on this one because I don't see how this works. Uh, God, I need to know how to respond here because it's compl- I'm not sure I'm going to mess. Would you help me? God, don't, don't you love it too where it says that God gives generously to all without reproach? I, I love that because God does not show favoritism. God's not going to give Billy Graham more than he gives you. God, it's not like he really likes Francis Chan, and when Francis prays, and God, God doesn't hear your prayers. Beth Moore, Andy Stanley, they've got nothing on you. They don't pray to a different God. Their God does not love them more than yours, loves you. And God will give generously. He'll give as much as you need, whatever you need, in order to bear up underneath this. And what he's saying here is, is trials. It's not just I need the discipline thing or even need the perspective. You need a person. You need to lean into God. He's saying you don't have to go through this by yourself. You're not supposed to go through this by yourself. You can't go through this by yourself. Sometimes, some of us, I think because of our 
German, Western European heritage thing. We're going to, we can do it on our own. You know, it's just like, God says you can't. You need, if you need wisdom, you need him with you. You call. He'll be there. He'll help you. He'll be underneath. He'll be underneath with you. He'll, he'll be right, right there in the midst, in the midst of it. Listen, Isaiah 43. This is a great text. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. This is kind of like the, the Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. I'm sure they were great guys. I'm sure they were great guys. But you know what? In and of themselves, they cannot handle the flames of the fire. They just can't. And so when Nebuchadnezzar has them thrown in, Nebuchadnezzar looks and he says, There's, I just threw three in. But there's a fourth one in there. And this one has the appearance as a son of the gods. Because he has to be with him. And all James is saying is you need a new perspective that, that trials are tools. But you also need a person. You need to lean into God because you were not meant to do this on your own. You, you, just, you just weren't. He says there's a third thing, though, that you need. And that is you need uh, a promise. Eyes on the prize. You need to recognize that this, this is not your home. But uh, that's verse 12. But hang on, let me back up. I'm sorry. Because verses 9 through 11, if you're following in your text, you're wondering, uh, what, what about those? Uh, we're not dealing with those this morning. The reason why is he's going to come back to that. And so we're going to talk about it then. But it fits this pa- passage perfectly. Because uh, in their time, there was two sets of rules, really. There was the rules for the very wealthy, and there were the rules for the very poor. There were just a few very wealthy, virtually no middle class. Everybody was, especially the Christians, his guys, very, very poor. And so the wealthy had the power, and they would abuse and exploit and manipulate and persecute. And so all he's saying in 9 through 11 is, don't envy those guys. I realize that that's the source of many of the trials you're dealing with. Then he gets on to verse 12. And that's when he says, you, you need a promise. You need a perspective. You need a person. You need a promise. You, you need eyes on the prize. And this is what he says. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. There are at least three sermons in this verse, all right? I'm not going to preach them all right now. But let me give you the, the big idea for each of the three, all right? Just so you know. Blessed is the man. The idea of, of blessing. Uh, follow me for a second, because I get, get, when I get excited, I get very, very fast in my speech. I understand that. But different word here, but the word blessed has a nuance of joy. Now, if you look back, verse 2. Consider it all joy when you go through problems, right? In other words, you are choosing yourself. I'm going to have this perspective. I'm going to, I'm going to consider it. I'm going, I'm going to choose that I believe this is coming from God. From, I'm going to choose to have joy. And then what he says is if you do that, you will be blessed. In other words, you will be made joyful. You start off with a mindset that says, I'm going to do this. I believe this. And as you do, your faith is strengthened and built. And you become 
that. The blessed, his promise for this life right now. He says, if you stand underneath the trials, if you don't bail, if you don't walk away, if you don't say forget it, if you stand underneath them, God promises blessing for you in this life. But not just this life, right? But not, but, but wait, there's more. He says, but also in the life to come. He says, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. So second thing would be this crown of, of life. It's uh, life eternal. It's uh, heavenly rewards. I don't know exactly what all that looks like in its fullness anyway, but I think we can trust in God's word. And then notice what he says as well, which God has promised to those who love him. Now, just follow with me for a second. Is he not in a sense anyway, equating those who stand under trials with those who love him. Same thing. Don't say, I love God, and then flee when the troubles come in. Because according to James, no, you don't. Because talk is cheap. Those who love him, trust him when the fire's turned up. When the pressure's big time, when it's heavy, when it's hard, they trust him. There may be tears, there may be confusion, but they they trust. They trust all the same. Uh, Let me, I'm just going to keep cruising here, man. Verse 13 through 15. You'll love it. Because. Paul, James kind of goes on a, a side here. But he says, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. Every single trial you realize, right, has an opportunity to sin. Whether it's uh, I'm failing financially and so I'm, I'm, I'm questioning God's providence. Or whatever the, the trial is, is, bad things happen and I'm questioning the love of God. I'm questioning the wisdom of God. I'm questioning the presence of God. I, I'm wondering if this is legit here. I'm, I, every trial that comes up, I have an opportunity uh, to sin here with it. And he says, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Well, what, what, basically, there are two ways we can view trials. One is we can view them, I consider it joy, or we can say, God's dumping on me. God's ripping me off, man. God is hurting me. God is, yeah, I failed here, but you know whose fault it is? You know, really, I would not have if this temptation, I would not have if this thing didn't come up. Yeah, yeah, God is is crashing on me. Two different ways we can view trials, and you will choose which way. It's not an innate thing. You will choose which way you go. I love the old movie, uh, Karate Kid. Remember this? Very famous uh, uh, portion of the movie. Very famous, man. A p- portion of the movie. Uh, Daniel moves to, I think, Southern California. And he uh, uh, is an outcast. He's bullied. The kids who are bullying him all know karate, and they're beating this poor kid up. He comes across Mr. Miyagi, right? You know, Mr. Miyagi, old Japanese guy, and who befriends him. And Daniel says, can you, can you teach me karate? You know karate? And, and Mr. Miyagi says, oh, yes, yeah, so come back tomorrow. So Daniel comes back the next day. Uh, Mr. Miyagi calls him Daniel-san, right? And so he says, okay, Daniel-san, Daniel's ready to learn karate. And Mr. Miyagi says, okay, shows him his cars. Somehow this, this old guy's got like 15 cars or whatever. And he says, you need to wax my cars. This is the way you put the wax on. This is the way you put the wax off. 
always wax on, wax off. And so he goes through and spends all day, from, I mean, till, till late at night, waxing these cars. Finally, they're done. He says, okay. He says, I'm going to come back tomorrow for, for karate. Yes, come back tomorrow for karate. Comes back the next day. And Mr. Maji says, okay, now I want you to sand deck. He says, no, this is the way you sand deck. You know, you move your hands specifically this way. Don't ever move them any other way. And so Daniel-san says, oh, okay. So he spends all day till late at night sanding this guy's deck. Next day comes back. Mr. Maji says, you paint fence. This is the way you paint fence, you know. And so, so all day, uh, Daniel-san's painting the fence exactly this way. Miyagi's watching him. And if he does it different, he gets yelled at. You've got to always do it this way. Next day, he's got to paint the house, right? So he's got to move the house. And so he has worked for this guy. He, he finally comes to him in a pretty famous scene here, right? And Daniel's son loses, loses it. He just has a meltdown, not really the greatest language, but he calls Miyagi all kinds of bad things. And he says, you know, I'm just your slave, and you don't know what you're doing, and you tell me to do all that. You just want me to do things for you. You don't care about me, and you're supposed to teach me. You got all these promises, and you're not keeping your promises. You're just making me do this stuff, and blah, 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 blah. And Miyagi gets a little ticked off and, and yells at him a little bit and says, you show me wax on. Daniel's son just wax on. And then he tries to hit him with a karate move. And because Daniel-san has done wax on for so many hours, it's instinctive. He blocks the move. He says, show me wax off. So he does wax off, and Mr. Miyagi tries to hit him with a different move. And instinctively, he moves, wax off, blocks the move. And Miyagi tries to kick him with a karate kick, and he goes down. He's going to do the fence thing and, and blocks it. Again, and so Mr. Miyagi's trying all these moves on him, but he's Daniel's son is starting to see what's going on, and so he's he's naturally because he's had this stuff driven into him, and when Miyagi's finally done, he he walks away. You can see Daniel's son realizes, you know what? I didn't understand what was going on. He really was training me. I think for us, God is training us. God is, is trying to grow us. He's trying to prep us. He's bringing things into our life to, 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 to make us who he wants us to be. But we get upset because it's not the way I thought it was supposed to be. And so we're accusing him. And, and I'm just your slave. And you're just ripping me off. And you've got all these promises. But you just make me do these things. And you bring me through these things. And blah, 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 blah. All the time, God is, is preparing us and getting us ready. So we, we choose. Do we see trials as tools from God's hand? Or do we see God maybe trying to rip us off? He's going he's to hurt us. You know, Genesis 22, interesting text. Because you, you know this story. God comes to Abraham. And uh, Abraham, Scott, at this point, he's probably 115 years old. Sarah's 95. They've got a child, Isaac. And through this child, God has promised Abraham, you're going to have a full nation through this one kid. Matter of fact, Abraham, the whole world will be blessed through this one kid. And so, so Abraham's thinking, this is great. Then God comes to him and says, okay, Abraham, tomorrow I want you to take Isaac up to Mount Moriah, and there I want you to kill him. And Abraham's got to be thinking, what? I mean, I mean, wait, 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 what? I mean, my, my 
the promises. God, look what you're doing to my fa- you, fa- my family's hurting because of what you do. This is not this is not everything. This this is going on here does not smell like you in any way, shape, or form. This doesn't have your hand on it anyway. This is kind of pagan ask because there's child sacrifice. You're not into that, God. I don't understand, God. I don't like this, God. This is a terrible thing. But what does Abram do? Next day, early in the morning, he packs up Isaac. Servants, they get to the foot of Moriah, leaves the servants behind. He and Isaac, who's 15 or whatever, go up to Mount Moriah, build the altar, the wood. He binds Isaac. He raises his knife and says, all right. And just before he brings it down, God speaks and he says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now, I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Now, I think God knew what Abram was going to do. But I don't think Abraham knew. The, the testing of God is not like a math test or a history test or something where we study and we go show what we know. The testing from God is he brings us to forks in the road. And we choose. I'm going to go this way or I'm going to obey. And Abraham, when he got there, because everything is on the line. He really obeys God, he believes God, or he doesn't. So he says, I'm going. I believe God. And because of that, Abram's faith that day grew. The testing of God is a supercharger for our growth. Massive for our growth. Can you imagine from this point on? Abraham knows when God tells me to do something and I do it, he's going to come through. One way or the other, he will come through. He will do what he's supposed to, supposed to do. So the trials that we're in are, in a sense, a, a, a testing. Fourth thing, though, we got to have a new perspective, right? We got to have see trials as, as tools. We got a second thing is we need a person. We got to lean on God. The, the third thing is we need a promise. We have to have our eyes on the prize. But there's a fourth thing. Verse 16 says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Whenever you see scripture tells us to not be deceived, we need to step back because we have a propensity to be deceived about exactly what he's going to talk about. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. You know what he's saying? He's saying, God is good. Yeah, yeah, all the time. That's what he's saying. Now, that's an easy thing to say when it's sunny out, right? You know, it's an easy thing to say when things are going well, but do you ever have one of these days you walk into church and somebody comes up to you smiling like the Cheshire cat and they say, they say, God is good. You're having a bad day. But you know, you're going to all the time. Some of the time, you know, you're just, you're not there. God is not good some of the time. God doesn't change. He's good all the time. It's a hard thing to say when you've gone to the doctor and he has bad news for you. It's a hard thing to say when you're watching your kid. You're watching him walk away and there's nothing you can do. It's a hard thing to, to, to say when there's a perfect storm that wipes out your financial security. It's a, it's a hard thing to say when there's confusion or Satan's hammering you inside and you're not even sure why. It's difficult to say it then. But there's no time in life that's more significant for you to say it. 
Even though things are falling apart, even though things are crazy, I've got to know this. If we could back up from a moment from this, looking at the, the trees of this text and look at the forest, this is all about knowing the character of God. The most important thing to allow us to handle trials is to know who our God is. Daniel 11, this is such a cool text. These are people who are being confronted by Antichrist, right? Daniel 11, do we have that? We might not have that. Let me just read that to you. If I've got it. While they're looking, let me find it for you. Um, these guys are, you know, the hardest thing I go through with when I preach is to know what to include and what not to include because there's so many good things that you've got to leave on the floor of your office. Um, but these guys are being confronted by hell itself, by the Antichrist. And this is Daniel 11, verse 32. This is a great verse. You want a verse to memorize. This is one you need to, you need to incorporate. It says that he shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Let me see it one more time. Troubles are going on, facing hell itself. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Primary thing for us is to have a biblical, correct view of God. But if you back up from this thing, in verse 2, what happens is he recognizes that, that these trials come from the hand of a sovereign God and says, therefore, I'm rejoicing because they come from God. Thank you, God, that you care for me. And in verse 5, he says, I'm going to pray to my God because he's going to stand with me. He doesn't want me to be alone as I go through these things. He's omnipresent. He goes into verse 16. He says, God is good continually. In verse 12, God makes promises and he never fails his promises. He always keeps them. And I'm going to reject the view that God is just trying to hurt me because that's an unbiblical view from, from hell. So I'm rejecting that. Everything James is talking about is a biblical understanding of who God is. And so if you've got that, you understand that, that, that trials are tools and you understand that, that uh, I need a person, I need to lean on God and I understand his promises that this world is not my home and I understand the character of God. You know what? You're still going to cry. You're still going to hurt. There'll still be stuff where you go, I, I, don't, I don't know. No. But it's not going to derail your faith. Better than that, the trials will do what they're supposed to do. And sanctification will hit you in a way you had never anticipated. And you will know him better than you had ever thought possible. And you will see yourself and you will understand life. And you will see through his eyes this world as very, very few people do. But it all comes to how you view and how you handle and do you stand up underneath trials. And so let me encourage you as we go through James, take advantage of what God has given us in his, his word in our time to study. Uh, take it back. Take it to your knees. Lord, would you help me? Would you help me to be? That's what he's for. That's what he wants to do. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you, Lord, for James. And I'm so grateful, God, that you give generously, that you don't reproach, you don't yell at us. For coming to you again and again and again, you, 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 you give generously. You're a good father. Thank you.
Lord, I pray for myself, my brothers and sisters here. Some amongst us are going through very deep waters. I'm so grateful, Lord. You said that when they walk through the waters, uh, you'll be with them. Would you make your presence known for all of us, God? May you remind us that we need to choose what we believe. And I pray, Lord, that as we do, people that we brush shoulders with every day would come to recognize and realize that you're real, Lord, and that you, you do love them. As we take up our offering too now, would you use it to, to strengthen your church here in Erie and beyond? In Jesus' name, amen.